Welcome to the Bloom and Grow podcast, where we share stories of those who have grown through grief and break down barriers that isolate us in those challenging parts of our lives. We know that time doesn't heal, but intention does. There isn't a before and after in grief, but we grow through it. Many days more difficult than others. The weight of grief doesn't get any lighter, but we can get better at carrying it. This podcast isn't just for those going through something sad or difficult, but it's also for those who know someone who is, by sharing tips and perspectives in how to be a better support for our loved ones that are grieving. I'm your host, Liz Bidler, and thanks for blooming and growing with us. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Bloom and Grow with Liz Fiddler podcast. I am your host, Liz Fiddler. Today, I have Joyelle joining me, and we are going to talk about her nonprofit. And if you're new to the podcast, my background is I lost my husband in 2020 to a heart attack, and I kind of went through this journey of trying to decide what my purpose, how I was going to try to help people. I struggled with starting a nonprofit myself. I own a flower farm and another business, and I have another podcast called the Sunny Mary Meadow Podcast. And ultimately, I found my purpose in elevating the voices of those that are doing good. And maybe it's helping those that are grieving. Maybe it's helping those that are struggling. And I just want to you know, share some of that information. So Joyelle is here. Am I saying your name right? Right, Joyelle? Yeah. Yes, okay. It is. Okay. It's not Joyelle. Yeah, very good job. <laughs> okay. Or Yoyel or a whole yeah. bunch of other yeah, exactly. generations. So yeah. please just tell us why you're here. And I'm really excited to learn more about who you help and ways that you can help maybe some of our listeners. Sure. I am the founder and executive director of one of the nation's only nonprofits focused on bereavement advocacy. And so indeed, we are the only nonprofit focused on bereavement advocacy for all people in America. I began this work about 10 years ago now, when in the aftermath of our daughter's death, I went back and was advising what you would call like executive level politicians on different policy frameworks and and different different you know laws or regulations and i was waking up most mornings and it was Trayvon Martin, Hydea Pendleton, Sandy Hook, the Chicago homicides, the Jasper tornadoes, etc and i just felt this need to explore grief and bereavement more deeply because I knew most people were going to be told to go to a support group. And I think those are wonderful, but if you've seen one, you've seen one or go see a therapist and there are excellent therapists out there, but there are also therapists who do not have a lot of expertise in this field and they can self-qualify that they're ready to attend to people facing a myriad of different losses. And so I really began my work through conversation at the community level in Washington, D.C. And over time, those conversations grew with people across America and people who had different experiences and backgrounds than I did. And I learned so much in that time. And so that's what really that's when I really began sort of the journey of Evermore, um, the organization that I lead. And I think it's also worth noting here, I'm a scientist by training. And so 
while I was having conversations with all these individuals, I also was reading the journals in bereavement. And there's actually a lot of pretty lousy science out there on this issue. It's gotten a lot better in the last couple of years. But I started to align the personal stories with these large quantitative data sets and began to realize that bereavement and grief is not just a personal experience of sadness. There are many connotations and ramifications during and after the bereavement experience that can unequivocally alter the trajectory of a life. And so I began working on this issue really in earnest with Congress about four years ago now. So that was about four years ago that you started putting this all together. So when I think of bereavement, I think of, you know, we get bereavement leave, we get this, you know, this allowed time that protection of our job or how we heal. But I think it's, you know, personally, when my husband died unexpectedly, I think that there were a lot of factors in place. And the fact that I was working full-time as a family practice, nurse practitioner, have a ton of friends and family that are medical or, you know, I, I had pretty much every resource available to me to help me heal. I actually had a therapist that I was already seeing. My late husband and I did just some air care, like uh, marriage counseling after I graduated NP school, we did two or three sessions and then kind of laughed. Like, you know, she's like, what, why are you guys coming here? And we're like, I don't know, like it was free with our insurance. I don't know. We thought it'd be fun. Like it was just like, we were that couple. So I already had someone established with me. I qualified for FMLA by the skin of my teeth because I had been full-time for a year, just those little things, but I don't, and I was able to really advocate for myself or what I needed, but that's definitely not the case for most people. And then the direction you know, that I think it takes. So when I think of bereavement, I think of personally, I think of it as maybe society's word for getting us back to functioning, you know, whatever that might be. And I think that it's such a, just an interesting dynamic of what the grief, what the grieving process should look like or can look like. And, you know, those of us who have experienced a loss, you yourself as well, we know that it's, it's not trying to get us back to normal. There is no back to normal. It's just finding our new way. So let's hear a little bit more about what resources you offer or what that looks like. Sure. I think it's important first, just for me to share a little bit of like definitions or the way we see the world. So grief, grief is the emotional response to a loss and it's not just death. We also have people who might be grieving a divorce grieving the loss of the job, or even during COVID, people would talk about grieving their former daily lives Mm -hmm. and their routines. Bereavement is the event, and it is the system around the individual and family um, or the systems. And so, for example, you will always be a bereaved spouse, but you might not always be grieving. And so there's a lot of nuance here around the issue. The first thing that I would share with your listeners is that bereavement, that is exposure to death, is associated with a number of other poor health, social, and economic outcomes. So for example, people who are exposed to a death event um, are more likely to drop out of school, experience academic hardships, become incarcerated, 
misuse substances, both alcohol or drugs, attempt suicide, complete suicide, die from premature death, and for bereaved parents, for example, it's premature death due to any cause. In fact, if you look at the data, and these are large scientific studies, if you looked at bereaved children, spouses, siblings, and parents, premature death is one outcome for each of those demographics. And so I took this information to Congress in January 2020, pre-COVID, because the United States had had a, concurrent, a concurrency of mortality epidemics for decades. Mm -hmm. So beyond just the regular causes of death, uh, or more traditional heart disease, cancer, diabetes, and so forth, which are escalating in the United States. We also had homicide, suicide, overdose, maternal mortality. And even in recent years beyond COVID, we also had traffic fatalities. And so what you have then is people who are exposed to these death events now become at risk for all of these other poor health or social or economic outcomes as a result of the death itself. And so part of the work where I started was just making a case that the U.S. government should have their eyes on this because they didn't prior to me just deciding to get meetings or try to secure meetings with a bunch of um, Capitol Hill staff who had a very specific type of work that I thought that this related to. And early on in this work, you know, one of the one of the things we don't see is that CDC collects mortality events, but they don't collect who survives those events and what the ramifications are. So there really is a good chunk of this is hard to see just how many people are impacted Although we know it is a great deal of people because for every one death, multiple people are usually impacted. Mm -hmm. And so it depends who you lose, when you lose them in life, and how you lose them. Mm -hmm. A child who loses a parent has different hardships in the aftermath than, let's say, a spouse like you, Liz, who loses their partner midlife. And losing, on, on top of all of this, losing someone, let's say losing a child to stillbirth is different than a homicide event, which is different than losing someone in hospice, because these are all either different relationships or different systems. Mm -hmm. And so the bere bereavement is the exposure to these deaths, then the systems around the families and how those systems operate or do not operate well in order to facilitate what I would call functional coping or adaptive processing. Mm -hmm. And so it just takes time. Bereavement leave is one lever. And yep. that is a lot of people think of bereavement leave. And actually bereavement leave is not part of FMLA. Depends on if you as an individual or your medical provider decides to label the grief mm -hmm. as a mental distress, then mm -hmm you can receive, potentially receive bereavement leave through FMLA. But mm -hmm. bereavement itself is not codified or formalized at the federal level in any regard. Right. Um, so let me give you maybe, you know, one or two other examples just to open the eyes for your listeners. So let's, we'll do two examples. One around bereaved children. 
So we know today that more than half of bereaved children in the United States, those are children who have experienced the death of a parent, are not receiving the social security benefits that they are already eligible for. So as a result of not receiving those financial benefits, those children not only grow up in greater poverty, they earn less wages for the rest of their lives as a result of not receiving this one very specific financial benefit. And is that, and I'm just asking, is that uh-huh. because their parents didn't qualify? Like, no, their parents did qualify. But they're just not getting them because the parents don't know to make the phone call? Well, it's pretty complicated. And I think to just generalize one observation across an entire population of more than a million children would probably not be appropriate. It could be that the children are relocated. It's that they may have lost both parents. They could be with a whole new set. They could be in the foster system. They could be with grandparents. They could be with extended family members who aren't able to answer the social security questions and even link their parents' income to the child. And then, you know, I'll tell you, I don't have the experience of standing in line or fighting with social security. I do know family. Yes. yes I, right. I was, this is why I, uh... I said that. You know, as you say this, so for those that are listening, and I actually, people are kind of shocked when I share that I get social security benefits and people look at me and they're like, so the government gives you money because your husband died. And it's like, okay, like, let's, let's start from the beginning. But essentially, you know, my husband paid into the program. And so if you have a minor child up until age 18 or graduated high school, we receive like 75% of what that payment would be up until they're that age. You used to have to prove that they're being used. You used to have to prove with receipts, which my receipt could be my mortgage or my grocery bill or any utilities. Like it's not hard to show that that money is being used for that. But I actually just finished writing a chapter in my book that I'm writing about and how stupid I think the process is just that, yeah, there's so many ways that you can get missed or that if I didn't advocate for myself for those, and it happened during COVID when I could not go into the building. And so like, I would call, I would leave a message to schedule an appointment for them to call me. And like, they can't call you. They send everything in letters because of there's so much social security fraud. And so, yeah, my mind is spinning right now. How yeah, they just fall off. There's no tracking. There's people don't, if you don't know how to advocate for yourself or what your rights are or where to even look. My best friend was also widowed in 2015. And so she was kind of my resource with walking me through the process. And then actually the funeral director for my husband's funeral, he just out of the kindness of his, like he made sure that I got everything that I needed to set that up. But even then that first year, it was such a process, especially also I found out I was pregnant after the funeral or yeah, the day after the funeral. And so like that birth certificate and having him on the birth certificate and yeah, I can see where absolutely if people don't know where or how to get those resources or what their rights are, it just never happens. So let me ask you on the birth certificate and getting his name, That's for the child or children that you have? Yes. So my daughter was born and basically for me, it wasn't a challenge because in the state of Minnesota, 
there was no DNA test required or anything because we were legally married at, you know, if you do the math and figure out the due date and the time of conception, there was no, there was no question whatsoever. They were able to put a deceased name on the birth certificate. I was told if we lived in other states, we probably would have had to do a DNA test to prove that that was the father because he was deceased, which is, it's just a very interesting how that process worked. Um, but it, there was no question and I did fertility treatment. So they were like, yeah, that's, it's his sperm or whatever, but it was, yeah. So then to have that birth certificate to get a social security number to her and then like apply for that back pay, uh, you know, five months later, I finally got it for her also. So you're receiving social security benefits for yourself as a spouse or um, are you just as like a parent for the child? The children. Correct. I yes. don't get them for myself because right. of my income level. But mm-hmm. what I also tell people, there's so much misconception in the, like all the Facebook groups I'm in, the income level is like $20,000. It's not high. Um, so people are like, I can't make more because of this. Well, the dollars I would get are reallocated to my daughters. It's kind of like, right. Right. I can't make more than this amount because my taxes go up. No, only that tiny bit over that is taxed at a higher rate. And it's the same thing. Whereas for me, my daughter's income actually isn't taxed, whereas mine would be. So it's, no, you are better off to have income and have, you know, that it's, it's, it's very complicated (laughs) and it's, yeah. And there's not even, even if you read the social security website, you don't, you don't understand it. It's, it's very complicated. We went off on a tangent a little bit there, but I think for people to understand, yes, I can absolutely see like, yeah, there are a million kids out there that whoever is caring for them should have this money to help raise them. But that's only if their parents qualified for the program, if they no, these million children would have qualified. I'm not. Yeah, yeah that's them. what I mean. That's what I mean. So those million children, like, so it's not every child uh, wouldn't qualify, but those would. Yeah. That's- yeah. So there are a number of different bereavement policies and practices. I'm sure that I'm not, you know, from a brief spouse perspective, it's common to have banking challenges or credit challenges um, afterwards because depends on how the initial accounts were set up. So freezing assets is one common outcome, particularly for bereaved spouses. But the point being is, again, depending on who you lose in your life Mm -hmm. and how you lose them and when you lose them in life, the systems around the individual and family can vary pretty significantly. Mm -hmm. And the work we're doing is one elevating those issues within an advocacy and national advocacy context. And the second is really thinking practically what the solutions are. Mm-hmm. And so my experience, not just as a scientist, but as a policy advisor, formally for both Republican and Democratic lawmakers, I have been able to go into a lot of different offices where people can just hear what I have to say without first thinking about partisanship, Mm -hmm. um, which is a very unique, I think, skill or a very unique characteristic or trait in Washington, Mm D.C. And so I've worked and we've worked really hard 
not to make this a partisan issue, but really to get the mechanics of the federal government going mm -hmm. in order to advance the interests of all bereaved people in the United States. Okay, we're going to pause this episode. I want you, when I'm done talking, don't hit pause right now because you won't know what to do. But as soon as I'm done talking, I want you to hit pause and I want you to go into this episode and I would love if you would rate this show with a five-star rating because that is how podcasts are successful. The algorithm, what the, you know, wherever you listen, the platform of maybe it's Spotify, maybe it's Apple, maybe it's Amazon, they can keep track of what episodes have a lot of downloads. And that's where, you know, if some people are liking it, they assume other people are going to like it because they want people using their streaming service. So if you are enjoying this, go and rate us, please, please, please. Shows with a higher rating get pushed out more because they think, well, if these people like it, other people will like it. Plus, if you're looking for a show to listen to and you're like, oh, well, it has four two-star ratings, I don't think I'm going to do that one. But if it has a hundred five-star ratings, yeah, more likelihood of listening. So it would really mean a lot to us if you could just hit pause, go and give us a rating, and then come back and finish listening. Thank you so much. I guess I hadn't really thought about, yeah, that reporting or that question. I mean, you know, for me, three years out since my husband passed away, um, you know, I got a phone call yesterday from actually, actually yesterday from my late husband's company that he worked for and they must have something on some sort of list and their air care or their, um, you know, EAP or whatever you might call it called me. But I mean, other than that, I mean, what, what follow-up is there? And if I didn't check in or resources or how do they know those statistics of, you know, my daughters or how will their dads affect them when, you know, how do you care for that? And so you're saying that there hasn't been, you know, statistics on that information, really reporting it. Right. Yeah. No, I was really, I mean, oddly enough, the first person to start knocking on doors and sort of putting it all together. Yeah. This is not just people being sad. Uh -huh. This is a huge population issue. Mm -hmm. And frankly, just having the opportunity to be invited into people's homes and into their lives where they were incredibly vulnerable, sharing the hardships that they were experiencing enabled me to start aligning other public crises mm -hmm. with this experience. Mm -hmm. And so when I'm talking to lawmakers about what can be done, there's a lot that's already out there on other public crises that we can take advantage of. We don't have to, we do have to invent and, and really think about some innovative methods to serve people when they're grieving or when a bereavement event begins to unfold. And also for the first responders and frontline providers who attend to people. But we need to think about what tools do we already have on the shelf that we don't need to reinvent. And so mm -hmm. one of the things that we did last year is because there are no practice standards for grief therapists in the United States, mm -hmm. uh, Literally, we've had reporters who've attended an eight-hour session online mm 
And in fact, during those eight hours, they went and cleaned their house. They came back at the end to take the quiz and they became a qualified grief therapist. And so attending to someone who's experienced a homicide, again, is very different than a stillbirth, is very different than an aging you know, parent in hospice. Should someone who can clean their house really be able to serve a family who's just experienced a homicide, for example? Mm -hmm. These are very sensitive um, and there's a lot of implications, again, and a lot of who you lose, how you lose them, and when you lose them in life. So what we did last year, and it looks like it will continue through next this, this year, is we established a federal commission to start looking at the feasibility of practice standards for grief therapists in the United States. Mm -hmm. So now people won't just be able to self-elect, that there'll actually be some standards they're going to have to meet. And so recently, actually just a week or two ago, I submitted comments to the federal government because thinking about what do we do? It's not just creating new practice standards for grief and bereavement, but again, we already have some tools on our shelf. So for example, we know from a very large population study that took place about over 30 years for the entire country of Norway, mm -hmm. that bereaved parents are very likely to use alcohol and indeed die from it. Mm -hmm. And so we then turn, uh, what I suggested to the federal government is we have this very specialized task force at the federal level, just looking at health and healthcare. And they put report cards out, giving A, B, C, D, those kinds of grades to different types of practices. So that task force has standards around alcohol misuse, mm -hmm. and they rate it with the B, mm -hmm. or B rating. Rather than just recreating things only for grief and bereavement, we can pull that those sets of protocols off the shelf for alcohol misuse when a bereaved parent walks in. Yeah. And we can aim to prevent alcohol or substance misuse from the things we already know. Mm -hmm. And so that's the type of advice that I'm giving the federal government. Yeah. I mean, just on the flip side, I'm a taxpayer as well. Yeah. And yeah. I think we have a lot that there's some things we're going to have to learn and we're going to have to roll up our sleeves a little bit on, yeah. but then there are other things that we all, we know, and that we can, other tools we can use. I mean, my mind is spinning. So I used to work full-time as a nurse practitioner in family practice. I now do virtual urgent care one day a week from home that stemmed from my husband's death, kind of a career change. I actually... I operate a huge flower farm now and have a podcast about flower farming and do this. And my career is really different. But I remember that first appointment that I went in to see a provider after my husband passed away. And so I was doing fertility treatments. So, but it was my first official OB appointment and I would have been, well, I think it was my eight week appointment. And I had already had like ultrasounds and they did all that, which was standard of care when you do fertility treatments to make sure the egg is in the right place. I mean, I probably got a little bit of special treatment. You know, we did a few extra ultrasounds and stuff in the beginning, but for the most part, it was standard. And I went in and right away, the nurse puts the PHQ-9 depression scale. And I mean, there was no special, there's no special bereavement scale. There's no, and again, like this is, right. and, and I'm seeing a nurse practitioner. I'm a nurse practitioner. And I looked at her and I was like, I am filling that thing out. Cause I, I, I just was like, you know, cause the questions are so like, are you sleeping? I'm like, if I fill that out, like, 
but but I'm going to respectfully decline because I'm right. grieving. I'm also prenatal. I'm also like, that does not right. apply to me. And that is not going to gauge my, you know, my depression or whatever. <laughs> and I think it's important though. It's likely that you weren't depressed. It's exactly. likely what you were experienced was normative. Exactly. And that's, yeah. that's what I said. I'm like, you can't, yeah. you can't measure my depression scale on know what I'm going through. And I'm like, I'm, I'm talking to my priest. I'm seeing my therapist. I've got someone staying with me. My sister moved in with me. I'm, I'm taking time off of work. I had every, I had every resource available to me to help me grieve in the unexpected. And it still sucked, (laughs) like obviously, you know, and so that's acknowledging and actually a lot of what I talk about with my best friend, like the the fact that, you know, and some of it was due to my employer, my position at work, my, you know, resources that I had worked for, worked toward, but yeah, not everyone has the same privilege when it comes to being able to grieve. And I, uh, I can't, I think there definitely needs to be resources in place for those that a a place to even know what resources you're entitled to or what, you know, as a, what, what, is bereavement a basic human right? I mean, we could we could go on and on. And I think that you and yeah. I have a lot of things to talk about. Yeah, I think as a society, investing in helping people grieve and bereave is the benefit to all. Yeah, I do too. Because if you don't have those resources through an employer or through your church or through your network or your friends or that support group, where else do you turn? Yeah. Agreed. So right now, I mean, you advocate through Congress through, I mean, let's hear a little bit about what your vision is for where this is going, or is it still kind of unknown? Well, I don't think so. I mean, there is a level when it comes to public policy of what I call more hustle and that you have to be more reactive and understand when the opportunities arise and just if you will, get the ball down the field, if not get the touchdown when the door cracks open. But no, we are focused on really attending to bereaved children, bereaved adults, Mm -hmm. and growing a movement of people and ambassadors who can really speak to these issues, not just even nationally, but locally, to their own media, to their own lawmakers, for example. And then maybe not of most interest to some of your listeners, but our fourth goal is really to ensure that we're running a good public charity, a a transparent public charity, and one that can be sustained in the long term. Mm -hmm. And so our goals are really focused on children and adults, as well as growing actors and champions across the United States Mm -hmm. to carry this work forward in their own communities and Mm -hmm. in their own localities. Mm -hmm. I'm feeling some sort of way right now, like hearing you talk, I just, and it's, it's definitely something that I have been, you know, three years out, I am happy and healthy and doing well. I, I really am. And it's taken a lot of work. It's taken a lot of intention, but it's also been a combination of resources that were available to me to allow me to grief and people that help me and step in and not everybody has that it is it is true i think the importance of social connections cannot be overstated here 
I also think depending on the systems that people are exposed to and the practices of those systems mm -hmm. can really make coping or adaptation almost impossible. In fact, in our work, we never talk about healing. If the individual talks about healing, that's fine. We don't. Yeah. Um, we don't. We don't talk about resilience either. We think that most people in America are plenty resilient. Mm -hmm. It's that the systems that are around the individuals are broken. And it's how many hits can someone take mm -hmm. before they can't get back up again. Mm -hmm. And that's something that we call weathering. Yeah. So we really talk about how do we configure circumstances and systems around an individual so that it doesn't overly tax them or weather them to such a degree mm -hmm. that they can't get back up again. But what we really encourage people is that you be the person standing next to them to lend a hand mm -hmm. and help them stand back up again. Because bereavement magnifies what's broken in America. And I think that social fabric and that social connectedness, while we are so close from a technology perspective, we really have experienced the breakdown of local community groups and churches and all sorts of different ways that people connect. And it's really small steps and incumbent on each of us to step out and help someone when we see that there's a need. Yeah. And it's really hard to do. Yeah. I honestly, when I looked at who I could help or what I could do with this podcast, with this voice that I've been given, I realized that, you know, I might be the one grieving person, but there are probably 15 incredibly influential people that have not grieved that have not, they, they were friends with Josh, but it wasn't their person. Right. But they, mm. they were the people that were impacted. So I think it's so important that we also work on ways to support those that are grieving. And that's what I want for, whether it's this podcast, this book, whatever it is that I'm trying to do here, help people that, you know what, maybe you're not the one grieving, but I think, you know, we can make a much bigger impact if we also try to target the audience of everyone else, because you know what, that might be such a small subset. If it's, if we look at just people who have experienced a loss, not just death, but like you said, divorce, job loss, whatever, but you look at who their circle is and it impacts everyone. It impacts right. as an entire, like you're, you're one degree away. You're, we're not six degrees of separation. You are one That's degree, right. someone who's lost someone. Yeah. So I think that, yeah, it's such important work. I am so okay. excited to have met you. I seriously, this is, I'm very intrigued. We'll put it that way. I'm going to be following closely. <laughs> I don't know oh. what that means necessarily, but this is really important work. And I've, like I said, I've, I don't want to say guilt, but I've, I've experienced like, you know, how, how could have my grieving been different or mm. not if I didn't have the resources, but yeah, well, it's my pleasure to meet you actually. And I can't imagine managing a flower farm, a podcast, urgent visit, yeah. kiddo, like it's a lot, um, yeah. like most women in America, it's really impressive. Well, and I just really appreciate your time and your and interest. I will put all of your information in the show notes and people okay. can find your work and support it. Thank Great. you. Thanks so much, Liz. Right. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Bloom and Grow with Liz Fiddler podcast. You can find us at bloomandgrow.llc on Instagram and Bloom and Grow with Liz Fiddler on Facebook. 
We're always looking for stories of those who have gone through the trenches of grief and found a way to keep blooming and growing through it. So if you have an idea for an episode, please send us an email, liz at sunnymarymeadow.com and tell us what you think. You can also go to our website, www.bloomandgrowwithliz.com and sign up for our email list. You'll find all of that information in the episode notes. Thanks for being here. Bloom and grow. Bloom and grow.